Uh, if you were here last week, uh, Christian Headland uh, spoke on the cost of discipleship, how Jesus calls all of us as his disciples uh, to take up our cross and follow him. Christian asked us all this question, uh, what does it really mean to follow Christ? Uh, in a sense, we're going to take this next year to answer that very same question by looking at how Jesus would have answered it in one single sermon. And arguably, Jesus' most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with that description, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you've likely heard many parts of this sermon in the church. Uh, even if you are not a Christian, uh, you've probably heard some of the things that Jesus taught in this sermon. For example... Uh, it's in this sermon that Jesus talks about turning the other cheek. Uh, it's in this sermon that Jesus says, uh, do not judge so that you won't be judged. Uh, it's in this sermon that Jesus talks about the golden rule. Uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, why is the college ministry, are we going through the Sermon on the Mount? Well, uh, a well-known pastor in the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he preached through the Sermon on the Mount. And he explained the need for the sermon at the time to combat the superficiality of the Christian church. In the history of the church, there have been times of great revival, but there have also been times of spiritual famine, where worldliness has crept into the church, has weakened the church. And I'm not saying that that's now, or that worldliness describes our church, Lighthouse, or even our college ministry, but there will always be for every single one of us, that fight against worldliness. And especially in college, a life stage where you're more or less out on your own, there will be that temptation to want to pursue both God and the world. And so we need to take in this sermon, what John Stott has called the Christian counterculture. We need to let this sermon really search us out, examine us and our faith. Are we truly living as disciples of Christ, counter to the culture we live in? Or do we have the mere appearance of godliness, but not the real thing? Do we know the religious verbiage, use the Christian lingo, even have the church attendance, but there is a very definite and obvious absence of the substance of faith, the power of God in you, the love for Christ? So tonight we're going to focus on the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Our passage is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. And this is what Jesus calls the Beatitudes. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, turn there with me to Matthew 5, 1 to 12. I'll read it for us, and then I'll pray. So let me read it for us. Matthew 5, 1 to 12. Seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let me pray for us. A Father in heaven, God, we listen now to the voice and the words of your son Jesus as he spoke 2,000 years ago, and now through the uh, written word, uh, he speaks to us. God, help us to take heed to what he has for us, God, that in following him, that we can know true life. So would you do a work in each of our hearts to your glory in your son's name? Amen. How would you describe the ideal college student? Now, as college students, what are virtues that you admire in other people and that you would want for yourself? How, how, others, um, how you would like others to view you? Maybe the virtues that you see in others that you're drawn to are being capable, resourceful, intelligent, articulate, self-confident, disciplined, strong. They look like they have it all together. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit and those who realize they have nothing in themselves. And maybe the virtues that stick out to you uh, is that of being easygoing, relaxed, even witty and funny, unhindered by the stresses of life, exams, papers, internships, relationship issues. Of course, you'll put some thought and effort into these things, but you are in college. And it's time to be yourself, do things you wouldn't normally do, make the most of your college experience, don't get worked up over all these little things like school and drama. Well, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, those who are very conscious of the reality of sin, not only in the world, but in their hearts. Maybe something you want that you see in others is that they have deep conviction, they're ambitious, they have passion, they know what they want to do in life. They have direction, a 10-year plan, and they know how to get to where they want to be. That is something that you want for yourself. Well, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for success, for achievement, for the fulfillment of your dreams, for recognition from your peers, for a secure and stable job in the future. He says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And finally, maybe the virtues that you see in others that you, you want for yourself are relational in nature. And that's what you prize. You want to be friendly, the nice guy, approachable, unintimidating, easy to get along with. Others will say you're a good listener, someone who everyone likes. Now Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Now, of course, as you're listening, many of these qualities are not bad in themselves. In fact, they can actually be a fruit of God's grace. But these virtues also can be bad if they conflict with the qualities Jesus says should characterize us. So as we continue, we have to keep in mind some big picture stuff. And so we can't lose the forest for the trees. I want to address three key ideas about the Sermon on the Mount, as you can see in your notes. The first is that this sermon is about discipleship. Discipleship. Verse 1 in our text says, Seeing the crowds, 
He, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now Jesus is speaking to the crowds, those who have been healed, those who would like to be healed, those who heard of his miracles and are just curious to want to hear him teach. But here Jesus is specifically and directly addressing the disciples. The disciples. In fact, taking a step back, as a gospel writer, Matthew, he's writing to a primarily Jewish audience. And so in his book, he gives not only many quotes from the Old Testament, he also, he's also making many allusions and connections to the Old Testament. And here in our passage, he's drawing an imagery from Exodus. When Moses went up on the mountain, mountain of Sinai, and received the law, the Ten Commandments for the Israelites. And in that law, in Deuteronomy, Moses says to the Israelites, Deuteronomy 18, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And the Lord himself says, Whoever will not listen to my words, that this prophet shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And now here in Matthew, here he is. Here is this prophesied prophet who speaks with the authority of God. And now we know that Matthew is making this connection with Moses and the coming prophet because of the way he ends the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7. Verse 28, 29 says, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This teacher is different. He speaks with divine authority. So here is an implication from this point that it's about discipleship. The Sermon on the Mount is meant to be obeyed. And it's not an impossible standard. Because some people might read the Sermon on the Mount and think, oh, this is just meant to show us how far we fall short. That this is just to point out that we cannot live this out. Well, it does show our sinfulness, but the whole point of the message is that Jesus actually expects every true disciple to follow and obey what he says. The second key idea is that the Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom of God. When Jesus began his ministry, he came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And right before the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 4, 23, verse 23, Jesus is going all over Galilee, healing people and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And now we enter this long discourse in chapters 5 to 7, and you see that the kingdom is mentioned throughout this sermon, eight times to be exact. And in fact, even in the Beatitudes, you see that it's bookended by, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's repeated twice. Note also the present tense, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this stands out because all the other rewards, blessings, and the Beatitudes are spoken of in the future tense. For example, they will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. Now, the sermon most definitely talks about the kingdom in the future tense, the coming kingdom. It's something you enter after judgment. It's something that you pray will come in the future. But this Future reality is so sure that it's talked about in the Beatitudes as though it presently belongs to you, that it is yours right now. It is your possession. Now, what does that mean? 
means that the Sermon on the Mount is about the future kingdom of God, but that presently belongs to us. And by our lives, by the way we live our lives today, we are demonstrating we are citizens of this kingdom. All right, the third and final key idea about the Sermon on the Mount is that your whole life declares who you are. Here's what I mean. The, the structure of the, the sermon speaks to this, um, where we talk about the Beatitudes first. It is first about character. It is first about who you are, and then it gets to how you live that out. Action, relationships. It is kind of like Paul's letters, if you're familiar with it. First half is usually the indicatives. That second half, usually imperatives. First half, this is who you are. Second half, this is how you are to live. And so the Sermon on the Mount is the same. The kind of person you are will bear fruit in the kind of life you live. And so the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, our passage is just going to focus on the character. Okay, so that's an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. As we get into the Beatitudes, let's talk about the Beatitudes as a whole. I know I wrote down three um, notes there. Um, I'm going to give four, actually, quick remarks on the Beatitudes. To clarify some misconceptions, um, some have equated the word Beatitude with be attitude, like have this attitude, think this way, feel this way. Um, but it's more than that, right? I just said it's about who you are. It's about your whole life. And the word itself, beatitude, means blessedness. So beatitudes are a pronouncement of blessing on you. And the Greek word for beatitudes, it can mean happy or fortunate. And so some have said, how happy are those who blank? And while that can be appropriate, I think for us, happiness is subjective. And that's not the point here. This is actually about the objective blessing of God on you. And so some have used the word congratulations to really draw out this point. Whoever lives in this way, this is the kind of person who is to be congratulated, who is to be praised and commended. Now, Another quick remark, these Beatitudes should be taken together, all together, not isolated from one another. You can't have someone who is poor in spirit, but who isn't merciful. It is like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, as you're familiar with the love, joy, peace, and so forth. They all go together. They're all aspects of the same singular fruit. So it is here. The disciple of Christ has all these qualities. They stand together. Next, the Beatitudes are not about natural temperament or personality. Now, you might think some people are given to being a peacemaker. You know, so-and-so is calm, is very chill about everything. But me, I, I'm naturally assertive. I, I can even be aggressive. Well, if it were true that the Beatitudes are about temperament and personality, well, some people would have an advantage of being pronounced blessed because then it... It's outside of your control. It's based on your personality. Now, these Beatitudes are supernatural quality. It's something produced by God's grace. Last observation about the Beatitudes. The reward for the blessing is experienced now, but in its fullness later. Now, it's our present experience 
that in Christ we are comforted, that we are shown mercy by God, we are his children. But it's not until the coming kingdom that we get to enjoy the fullness of God's blessings. So with that, let's get into the individual beatitudes. What are we talking about here? So the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, someone who is poor in spirit is not someone who's timid or shy or fearful, false humility. To be poor in spirit is talking about a consciousness of our great need for God. In the Old Testament, the materially poor are often those who truly understood this, how dependent they are on God and his provision for food, clothing, protection. And so even in the Old Testament, the, those who were materially poor, they came to have spiritual overtones. For example, David, King David says in Psalm 34, verse 6, This poor man cried, referring to himself, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, saved him out of all his troubles. And so to be poor in spirit, not about fundamentally, not about material need, but our great need spiritually. That apart from God, I am spiritually Bankrupt. I have absolutely nothing to offer God in myself that makes me worthy of his favor. I have nothing to say, God, look at me. Look at how worthy I am because of this. I have nothing. Consider Revelation 3, when Jesus indicts the believers in Laodicea. Remember, he calls them lukewarm. He says this, For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And that is their true spiritual condition. And yet they act like they have everything they need in their money and possessions. Now even Jesus, the very Son of God, demonstrated this. When he says, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. He is completely dependent on the Father to do his will. And to have another example other than Jesus, take the Apostle Paul. Here is this man, very accomplished, well-educated under Gamaliel. He's gifted, and yet to the Corinthians, he says, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. But he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Paul is not relying on his abilities, on his gifting, his education, his intellect, or his religious pedigree. He's very conscious of his need for God. Now, is this the kind of person you and I are? Now, what can it look like to be poor in spirit? I think one example, we have to consider our prayer life. Now, prayerlessness is not ultimately about just not performing a Christian duty. Prayerlessness is a declaration of self-sufficiency, of I can do this, that I don't need God to live. But the poor in spirit are those who seek refuge in God daily all the time. So how often do we go to God throughout the day because of your conscious you are conscious of your need for him to to pause and to express our need for him and not to treat him as 
a genie, right? Not to just get the grade that we want or the job that we want. And we should be asking for his favor because we want him to be glorified, whatever the outcome. We should be asking for the faith to see him as our greatest treasure, the courage to love. Now, this sense of of need and desperation comes only when we encounter and behold God, when we remember that it is in him that we have our very existence. But not only are we struck by our smallness as we contemplate the greatness of God, we're also at the same time struck by our sinfulness. And so we have our second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn. Again, this is not natural temperament or personality. This is not someone who tends toward pessimism or who tends to be sullen or given to self-pity. It is, it is true that most everyone, whether you are a Christian or not, mourns in the face of tragedy. For example, in an extreme case, the death of a loved one. There is no one who is unaffected by sadness. But here in this beatitude, this is primarily speaking of mourning for sin and the havoc that sin has wrought on this world. And so as Romans 8 says, we groan. We, you and I groan inwardly because this world is not what it should be. It's full of suffering and brokenness. But not only do we mourn because of the sin in the world, the sins of others, we mourn because of our own sin. And the Old Testament talks about mourning to describe repentance. Mourning to describe repentance. For example, Psalm 51, it's one of David's psalms of repentance. In verse 17, he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And this is the testimony of the saints who have gone before us, that when they have beheld God, they were stricken by their own sinfulness. You see it in Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, when he sees a vision and beholds the the Lord on his throne. He says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. This is Peter when he listens to Jesus' teaching, and now Jesus tells him, cast your net on the other side. And Jesus, he's been toiling all night, but uh, but Peter listens to Jesus, decides to do it, and catches all this fish. And what does Peter say next? He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And this is Paul in the face of Jesus' perfect patience toward him. Paul, he sees himself as the chief of sinners. This is the Apostle John in Revelation 1. When when John sees a vision of the risen Jesus in his glory, he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And this is what happens when we behold Christ in his glory, his righteousness. We cannot help but be confronted with how far we fall short, our sin. But Jesus says to us, it is, it is you. It is, it is these people who truly mourn who shall be comforted. Now Christ, when he sees us in this state, he does not cast us out for our sin. But he calls out to us, invites us, cleanses us, restores us, and is committed to making us whole. And this is our Savior. So what can it look like to truly mourn? Now, um, think about those times 
when you get sad. It could be all sorts of things. Maybe you studied and worked hard all semester, did not get the grade you were hoping for. Maybe it's when you are alone or you're scrolling through social media and suddenly you feel loneliness. You feel like you don't have friends who really know you. Or maybe there is a friend that you really care for and you value the friendship, but it just doesn't seem to be reciprocated. Now, what do you do with your sadness? How do you deal with the hurt, pain, and even frustrations of life? As you think about it, do you get more and more discontent because you're just not getting what you want? Or maybe on the other hand, do you tend to ignore these depressing and sad thoughts because you don't want to stay there? You don't want to dwell in that sadness? In either option, the reality is, when you are not taking all of that to God, you miss out. You miss out on experiencing His grace, His comfort, the hope that He actually brings. So how are you taking your sadness, the things that don't go according to plan, don't go according to your way, how are you taking them to God? Is lamenting to Him a regular part of your life? Another application, how do you deal with your sin? You know, what does confession sound like for you? And does confession tend to be general? Or can you get more specific with your anger, with your selfishness, with your worries? What are these things saying about what you are loving more than God? Is, that, is the sorrow that you're feeling, the sadness that you're feeling, a, a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to a greater love for him? Now, next beatitude, Jesus says, blessed are the meek. The meek. Or humble. Now, being meek is, is not about being a pushover. It's not about sounding apologetic. It's not being wishy-washy or flabby or spineless in your convictions. It is what is described in Isaiah 66. The high and lofty one, the Lord, he says, this is the one to whom I will look. The one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And the mark of meekness is the one who trembles at God's word. In other words, you fear God. And you obey him. Even Jesus himself says, I do as the Father has commanded me. The mark of humility is obedience. But here's the thing about meekness and humility. And I think this is when it becomes apparent that we are not humble and meek. It's one thing to be honest with ourselves before God. But it's another thing for someone else to say the same thing about me. For example, yeah, I know that I am selfish in how I spend my free time. But for you to point that out to me, now that irks you. That riles you up. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said this in defining and describing meekness. He says, meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others with respect to others. The man who is truly meek 
is the one who is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. And so what can it look like to be meek? Now think of our conversations and interactions with others. Do we tend to be self-protective? We hold others at arm's length, not letting others in? Are we quick to turn the conversation from us to the other person or to something else because we are just uncomfortable talking about ourselves? We're not really open with anyone about what's going on in our heart, about what we're struggling with. Is there a sense of being really guarded about our image, about how we want to portray ourselves to others? Now, this is the person who is not meek, but rather proud, too concerned about how others think more than fearing and obeying God. Next beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So when you come before a great and awesome God, you are brought low. Uh, you feel that there's truly nothing in you before God, and you are stricken with how much you are unlike him in his holiness. You are brought low in your sin, and, and you are meek toward others, not ultimately concerned about your own image, but you're concerned about righteousness. That is what you hunger and thirst after. And those verbs are intentionally vivid, even picturesque. And I think this is part of why God designed us and our bodies this way, that we need food and water to survive, to know this experience. We all know what it feels like to hunger and thirst. Maybe some of us in other parts of the world more regularly and intensely than we have, but all of us, we know what it's like to hunger and thirst. And so what Jesus is describing here, this is no passing feeling. This is not a flicker, so to speak. It's, it is desperation. It is intense. It is consistent, a strong urge. And to draw this out further, one commentator has said, uh, it's not even enough to be hungry in, in the way that we perceive hunger. It, you must be starving. The commentator describes it this way. When the prodigal son was hungry, he went to feed upon husks. That's pig food. But when he was starving, he turned to his father. To his father. Now, what, what do you and I do when we've had a hard day? Uh, when we feel overwhelmed with so many things to do, not enough time. When we feel stressed out, about midterms, exams, when there's tension in a relationship, when we're so annoyed by something or someone, or we're just a, an emotional mess. Uh, what do you and I typically turn to for comfort? Is it food? Is it your phone, watching videos, entertainment, to work out a friend, for that person to validate you, you just work, study, to be productive? Or do we pursue righteousness? What is pleasing to God? Are we turning to him? Now, it doesn't mean that you don't do any of what I just mentioned, but is there a conscious pursuit of righteousness to please him? And thankfully, this isn't a bare command without a promise, right? It comes with blessing. 
It's actually a paradox. He says, if you pursue righteousness, you will be satisfied. I think we tend to think if we hunger and thirst after our own happiness, our own pleasure, our own satisfaction, we think, yeah, we'll get it. But the reality is we won't. Instead, we will get emptiness, misery. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that when you pursue righteousness, it will automatically feel good. But the satisfaction that does come first is that you can rest in the fact that your God, your Father in heaven is pleased. And oftentimes the feelings do start to follow later. For example, you're not as stressed out about the result of your exams or your GPA, or you're not as stressed out about the million things that you wanted to get done, but realize that these things are not the measure of whether God is pleased with you. You're not as controlled or worried about a comment made about you, so forth. So when are those times that you do get stressed out? Is it pleasing God that we're really after, or is it something else? Is it not wanting to be a failure? Failure as a student, failure as a friend, failure in your responsibilities, not wanting to be a failure in the eyes of your parents or family? Now, is not being a failure more important to you than pursuing righteousness? Next beatitude, blessed are the merciful. Uh, to distinguish grace from mercy, it's been said that grace has especially to do with sin and guilt, whereas mercy is especially associated with the consequences of sin, the misery that comes from sin. Mercy is, quote, a sense of pity, a pity in the good sense, plus a desire to relieve the suffering. It is pity plus the action. Now, it is the good Samaritan tending to the physical needs of the beaten man. It is the father himself, out of his great compassion, sending his very son to relieve the suffering of his people. It is Jesus touching the unclean. It is Jesus walking with his betrayer for three years. It is Jesus while dying on the cross, speaking of his very enemies, Father, forgive them. That is mercy. Now, um, I think this is an important note to make. We live in a unique age where we have instant access to news halfway across the world, let alone news across LA, the city we live in. But we're not made or meant to alleviate the endless suffering any and every time we hear something. We're not meant to feel overwhelmed by all the needs around us and feel like we're failures because we can't meet all of them. And even Jesus did not meet every single need. He did not heal every single sick person that he could have. But what this beatitude is getting at is that what should characterize us is that we would go out of our way, though it inconveniences us, to help someone because we see this person's real need and our ability to meet that need. When someone has wronged us, it means there is a readiness and a willingness to forgive them because of the forgiveness we have been shown. And John Stott has said this, he's comparing meekness with being merciful here. He says, to be meek is to acknowledge to others that we are sinners. To be merciful is to have compassion on others 
for they are sinners too. Now, what can it look like for you and I to be merciful? Do you see the other sinners in this very room and and on your campus? Do you see with the eyes of compassion whether they are believers or not? And if believers, because of their quirk or personality or even some sin that we see in them, do we view ourselves as better than them? Now, to get more practical in fellowship, for example, right after Beacon, any, any kind of fellowship really, do we tend to always talk to people we are comfortable with, that we click with, that we like being around? Or do we have the eyes to see the compassion for others who don't know as many people or who would appreciate a conversation with you? And this is what it means to be merciful. Next, uh, blessed are the pure in heart. Now, I think there are two aspects here. One referring to moral character. It's, it's the inward and true as opposed to just the outward display of, of righteousness. But there is another sense referring to sincere loyalty to God. It is the singular devotion to him, wholehearted service to him. Now, this is vertically true, but it also must be horizontally true in how we love others. And that is why 1 Timothy 1.5 says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart. So what can this look like? Now think of those times uh, when it's harder for you to love. Uh, when it's easier to just shut down or give up or cave in. Uh, whether it's a specific person that comes to mind or a situation. Now, quick story. I remember when I was in UCLA, um, our class would sometimes have meals together in the dining hall. And I um, prefer one-on-one conversations more than group conversations, especially a, a large group setting, right? It's easier to just think about one person than it is to think about multiple people, multiple people, right? <clears throat> but um, I realized that 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 is not love that issues from a pure heart. Um, it's not sincerely and truly loving these people, um, whether I am speaking to someone on one or I'm in a group setting. Pure heart means that I am committed to caring and loving these people, whatever the the context or situation is, whatever my preferences are. So what about you? And when is it harder to love from a pure heart? Maybe in a fellowship with a larger group like this. Maybe it's someone that you're serving with in a ministry team. Are you devoted in love to the people around you? Next, beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers. Now, being a peacemaker is not about being easygoing or being carefree. It's not peace at all costs. It's not, I don't want to cause any trouble. I don't want to uh, be a burden on others. In fact, being conflict-averse, which is what I tend toward, being conflict-averse may very well go against being a peacemaker. 
Uh, this is because being a peacemaker means first acknowledging that sin is the essential problem bringing division between man and God and between people. Now, what can this look like with a friend who is a Christian? Well, it can be very easy for the love of my own comfort to ignore or, or sidestep a significant sin issue and pattern that I see in a friend. But peacemaking involves, however messy it is, and it will get messy, messy, uh, bringing it up, not just leaving the person there, but a commitment to walk with this person. Because I am concerned about this person's relationship with God. That is peacemaking. Now, what can this look like with someone who is not a Christian? And when I reflect on my college days, honestly, one of the, the sweetest memories and experiences is being able to love and invest in a, a, someone I befriended who did not know the Lord. Um, and there was a group of us who consistently reached out to him. And during my time in college there, he came to Christ. He came to saving faith. And to have a part in that. That is one of the most encouraging things to see someone receive eternal life. So can I encourage you, as you're here beginning of the school year, college is unique. More time together, life on life. It's just easier to be in each other's presence, study, play, eat. Is there someone in your life right now where you can be instrumental in bringing peace between this person and God. Now here's this uh, final beatitude. And uh, verses 11 and 12, I think, elaborate on this final beatitude of verse 10. So verse 10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Here's this great paradox. Jesus is essentially saying, those who are truly peacemakers are those who will be persecuted. And notice the key words, persecuted, for righteousness' sake. And in verse 11, um, they'll revile you, say all kinds of things, on my account, is what Jesus says. So you and I are not persecuted because we're overzealous, or annoying, or obnoxious, or just inconsiderate of people. But it's because of our allegiance to Jesus and his ways that we are ridiculed. Now, to put ourselves in the shoes of the first disciples of Jesus, remember many of them are Jewish. This would have been a needed assurance, a great comfort. Being persecuted by other fellow Jews, it doesn't mean that they're in the wrong in following Jesus, the Messiah. It doesn't mean that they're not following the God of Israel. And in fact, they are, just as the prophets of the Old Testament suffered at the hands of fellow Jews. And so here we find a composite picture of a disciple of Jesus. This is who you and I are in our character. I have a consciousness of my great need for God every single day. I am prayerful because I'm absolutely dependent on him to live a life pleasing to him, to glorify him, to love as Christ loves. And yet I know I fail. And so I mourn. And confess my sin. Repent. I ask for help from God, from others. I come alongside others. Not thinking I'm better than them, than my brothers and sisters. But seeking after what is most 
pleasing to God, doing things that stretch me, make me uncomfortable as I extend mercy, see others with compassion and love. And I love not to get something from them, but I love from a pure heart, out of sincerity, seeking their highest good, which is a relationship with God that finds Him to be all-satisfying. A relationship with God that is vibrant. That is what I'm concerned for, for my brothers and sisters. And even if loving in this way brings misunderstanding, suffering, even persecution. Because when we live like this, Jesus says, you're blessed. And so as we continue to work through the Sermon on the Mount this year, we're going to see more and more of the implications of gospel, of his grace to transform us from the inside out. And so may the Lord shape our character as we keep learning Christ and follow him. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father in heaven, and God, the Beatitudes, when we think deeply upon them, um, they cut to the core. Um, and yet at the same time, we know that uh, taking at face value, God, it can seem ethereal, ethereal, it can seem just abstract. Um, so Father, would you impress these truths upon us deeply so that we know what this can look like in our lives, in our day-to-day. So I pray that you would use our small group discussion and meditation even later this week, next week, that you would make us more like Christ. In your son's name we pray, amen.